Hey, everybody. This is the Freakopolis Times, our podcast, mostly about stuff related to our comics and game shop, the Freakopolis Geekery. We're Ian, Tyler, and Troy, and we run the shop and host this podcast. Join us and some occasional guests as we talk comics, games, pop culture, and just about anything else that pops up. Remember, while some of our topics can get a little geeky, they change up often, so hang in there and maybe the next one will be more your style. By the way, this podcast is video enhanced on YouTube and Spotify. Check it out if you're feeling left out on the visuals. You never know what might show up. Now, let's do the show. Let's talk about the other, other white meat. <laughs> what are you talking about? The other, other white meat. Tofu? No. The other, other, other white meat. DC. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. DC, I think we can all agree, does not have the strongest run with live action. Their experiments, I would call them, in live action. Uh, it's hard for me to say. I don't really watch DC movies for the most part. Um, you never watch Justice League? Uh, no, I don't think I watch Justice League. I, I've seen, you know, I've seen uh, some of the Batman movies. As like ever. the Dark Knight trilogy? No, I don't think so. What? No. <laughs> Okay, okay, I mean, well, that's the ones I've seen. Yeah, those, yeah, right? everyone knows that Batman is the best part of DC and the Dark Knight trilogy is the best part of their live action. <laughs> you might be missing out a yeah. little bit. Okay, well, I'm not, a, I'm not, not, I don't know. I'm not Ledger's big... Joker, you never watched that? Not Dark Knight a, Rises? Not a big DC fan. I, I, it's I, a good movie. It is a very good movie. Yeah. It's not necessarily, well, it's not really the DC universe. That's just Batman. As far as trilogies are concerned, it's no Lord of the Rings, but it's it's pretty damn good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So, but since then, it's been a uh, a downhill road. They they have not been having a good time. I'd say Wonder Woman, the first one, was was pretty strong. But it was pretty good. There's a few few things I can like about the other ones, and by few I mean a very limited number of things. Uh, They're pretty hit or miss these DC movies. I mean, the Joker, yeah. the highest grossing R-rated film of all time. They certainly hit the nail on the head with that one, but you can't tell when they're going to do that, and that's such a dangerous place for them to be in yeah. as a franchise. Well, you know, I mean, DC's universe overall is somewhat more, I don't know, it's it's sort of cornball, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, uh, their characters are kind of cornball, and it, by comparison, I feel like then, you know, that it... It's like it lends itself well to um, cartoons, um, less more so than movies. Which is where their most recent stuff does shine, is the DC animated series mm -hmm. are way stronger than the live action series by, like, multitudes. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it works there. I mean, the, the uh, Harley Quinn series... Yeah. On uh, HBO Max, I think, is where it is now, um, is a lot of fun. It is. Young Justice, people love that. Batman the Animated Series is legendary yeah. and deserves that position. Yeah, really like, good stuff there. Yeah. 
So it seems as though, right, that universe, well, I guess that's kind of the Batman rogue gallery and Batman, which, like we said, is generally their strong point anyway. But when you take those guys and turn them into animation, I don't know, they can come up with some really fun stuff that works so well. Yeah, like all of a sudden you can believe that Mr. Freeze froze City Hall and everyone inside of it and Batman needs to figure out a way to unfreeze them, you know, mm -hmm. or what the hell ever, but like, that, that sounds like a cool episode, you know? Yeah. But if they try and do that in, in the most recent Batman movie, you'd be like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> and that's exactly what I mean by cornball. Yeah, yeah. Like, that sort of stuff happens in the DC universe and it doesn't so often happen, like, like, in the Marvel Universe, if a building of people gets frozen like that, well, they're probably... you got to write them off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, Peter, M.A. was in that building. <laughs> like, they don't get unfrozen. No, right? <laughs> no. But in the DC Universe, that can happen. And mm -hmm. so the movies come off kind of weird like it's it's hard to get a grip on what the reality is there's something about of course cartoon animation where you're willing to sort of let that go of course any crazy thing can happen mm -hmm. of course he can summon a giant sledgehammer and and hit you know them into the ground of course you know, like kite it. man could sleep with poison ivy. <laughs> <laughs> Of course. Yeah, that isn't going to happen in the Marvel universe. <laughs> Way too grounded for that. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, yeah. I think that it is good that they've found where they can hit their stride. And I think that those teams are talented and use their characters really well and should continue to come out with stuff that will keep DC in the spotlight yeah, in some yeah. way. But... Holy damn, their live action is just garbage more than half the time. Like, well, and that's, I think that's what happened is, you know, for me, I became a bit jaded against their live action because, you know, you, you watch four or five movies in a row from them that are really just disappointing um, as superhero movies. And, you know, all of a sudden you're less inclined to believe that they're going to be able to do it. Um, but, yeah, this, the, the cartooning stuff, what I love about it is not only do they do a nice job with the animation, but they really go all out on the, the voice acting yeah, yeah, and yeah. the audio. And that it makes such a huge difference. And the, the voice talent that they get is, uh, is great. I, I just love the, the, the uh, characters they create there. Alan Tudyk's Clayface is awesome. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah, and he is uh, Clayface and the Joker in, right. in that series. Which... Yeah, what a range. Like, holy yeah. moly, yeah. yeah. As well as some other characters, uh, Condiment, Captain Condiment or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but uh, he does as Clayface well. alone is like seven different characters. Yeah, he's, <laughs> yeah. he's always playing that up. Yeah, and all of the rest of the characters as well. I mean, uh, uh, Jason Alexander, Alexander's... Uh, uh, Cyborg or whatever his name is. Cy, yeah, he's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I believe that's an original character for the show. That's what I thought yeah. as well. I'm not familiar with him from any other branch of DC or, or Gotham yeah. in particular, so... Yeah. Which is cool because, of course, Harley herself comes from the animated series, 
And it's mm-hmm. I think that it's good that they have people who are still thinking up new original characters to add to the IP and have some fun with, you know? Yeah, and he's a blast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it proves to be a totally worthy addition to the team. Like Now, they normally do hammer the nail on the head for these cartoons DC does, but their live-action TV shows are also generally different from their movies in that I've mostly only heard good things about, like, The Flash... And Green Arrow. The Flash has a large viewership and and some people who are big fans, but as one of my good friends put it, it got to a point around season two where Barry was just like, I can't do it, guys. I I can't go fast enough. And his friends were always like, you can do it, Barry. Just run faster. (laughs) And he would run faster and he would beat the villain. Like, (laughs) it really can only go so far when it comes to... Justice League power characters. We know Superman's gonna win. He's goddamn Superman. <laughs> he's got hundreds of powers. Yeah, yeah. Him. He could shoot many Supermen out of his hands. Well, speaking of Superman, <laughs> like I love when the Justice League shows up in the Harley Quinn series yeah. and and like just shows like how far beyond they are from anything you'd seen in the yeah, entire... Yeah, yeah, just destroy everything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That is a lot of fun. It definitely shows that those writers and stuff were ready to, to bring in the big punchers, the, the big league, you know? <laughs> it's cool to see that it's a bigger thing. Uh, hell, Darkseed, Darkseid... Is, plant put it yeah. <laughs> so what is it really i've had fans tell me both dark right. side i'm sure dark right. side yeah i always knew it as dark sea right uh but before uh but all of a sudden like since it's been pronounced like in in the media and you hear it pronounced in the media it usually is dark side dark side uh, yeah so i don't know why that seems worse but it is they're both not great options right their naming convention is a little off well you know i think dark side leans more toward the cornball so i'm gonna go with that yeah Uh, right (laughs) (laughs) that's the way they work right Right. yeah Mm -hmm. so dark side yeah uh to throw him into harley quinn was definitely a surprise you know yeah spoilers yeah, and the fact that he did some goofy monologuing right, uh, yeah. was, I guess, yeah, there you go. You know, like, uh, it works in the cartoon, but, you know, would it work in, in, in a feature film? I don't know. There is a niche community of people out there who are living in VR from... Dusk till dawn. Every moment. Already? Yes. Is this happening already? Yes. The future is here. It is. So, is there like some... Okay, so they're in the metaverse. Yes. They've been zucked in. They're zucked in. They've been zucked into the metaverse. And they're doing this like the entire... Well, all night, apparently. All night, all day. You yep. said dusk till dawn. Any well, you know, any moment that they get is kind of the way that they. Whenever go they can be in the metaverse, they're there. Yes. But what, do you know what experience they're in? 
I'm fairly certain they live in strange arenas as uh, hedgehogs and various strange avatars. Say like VR chat rooms, yeah. basically. And With other people zucked in. Yes. You have to wonder, between all these zuckers, uh, when you see any of them squatting in the corner, do you have to assume they're taking a dump? Because <laughs> <laughs> they've got their VR heads in on. Uh. It's like... Well, how's it going, guys? <laughs> just, just hanging in this corner real quick. <laughs> oh no, I, so, that's taking it to another level. <laughs> you're really committed. I think you. I if think that's the sort of VR. If you're, you're going to be living amongst those people, then you, you just have to. That's what you signed up for. Wave off a lot of strange movements and. <laughs> uh, I guess yeah. I mean, I. I so, this was inevitable, right? I mean, uh, the, 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 the inevitable, uh, I don't know about, you know, urinating in the corners, but, uh, uh, you know, it's inevitable that uh, people were going to try to spend extended periods in VR and, and replace themselves with, I guess, their hedgehog per- personas. Yes. Um, but I guess I was wondering, like, I, I, I was imagining maybe it would be something like you'd be a superhero or... You know, sure. something anime like that. character, yeah, you know, what have you, right? It, it is a little surprising that it, the first batch of people going for this are uh, digital <laughs> digital furries or something. They're not all. Uh, so, some of them are characters from video games. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, you know, maybe whatever they're, model. Maybe they're Mario. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. If you choose to live as Mario and live out your days in VR, uh, just chilling. Do you guys do a Mario impression? No, no, <laughs> no not Me gonna, neither. Not going to attempt it. Yeah, I got no Mario. Luigi, though, <laughs> you got him. I got you, Luigi. Some cool news. In the video game realm of things, which, you know, everybody loves them. Yeah, well, you've got... This is news that pertains to your style of video game playing, which is... Survival horror, sure. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I like survival horror. I like having very uh, precise combat, having risk, having a lot of resource management. Keeps things on the edge. Uh, Sometimes I like being scared, so... Yeah, that genre calls out to me for sure, but... I think these games are bigger than just survival horror. These are some iconic titles. Okay. Uh, yeah, so first up on the list is that Naughty Dog has finally confirmed the most known secret in the video game world, and that is that they have had a contingency of their teams working on a remake of The Last of Us Part 1 for PlayStation 5. Mm-hmm. So The Last of Us being a huge, successful survival horror post-apocalyptic video game. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Naughty Dog's take on zombies. Uh, the Last of Us Part setting. Two continued on from with that. Yes, The Last of Us Part Two Murder Simulator uh, came out not long <laughs> afterwards. And then they make they're making a, a streamable. Program is that that's part of the same franchise? Oh yeah, they're gonna have an HBO show with uh, Pedro Pascal playing Joel, who is the main 
protagonist. Yeah, basically. yeah, and Pedro Pascal played uh, Mando. Yeah, Mando. Who I don't know why they call him Mando. Sure, the point's been made a thousand times, but it would be Manda. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so it, now in that franchise, what you're saying is that they're they're going back and remaking the first one. Yes, consider that uh, The Last of Us Part 1 came out on PlayStation 3, mm-hmm. and then was remastered on PlayStation 3, then remade for PlayStation 4, now will be remade for PlayStation 5. <laughs> They're going with the Skyrim logic of things in which you can just release the same game three or four times within three or four years and make three or four times the money. Though, that's in question. I wonder, since they said that they'll be updating the gameplay, The Last of Us Part Two includes a lot of more modern style of gameplay, really fluid combat and the ability to go prone, uh, which is a huge change from the first part. If they introduce those types of gameplay elements into this remake and I can imagine some of these levels being remade with the ability to go prone or uh, use these new techniques that they've introduced to the series it will make a big difference in the whole experience and, and it could be a totally different feel for the game while still being true to the story and the, the characters. Anything else leaked about that yet? Oh, no, it was all known for like yeah, a yeah. year and a half, yeah, that that was upcoming. Uh, much to some people's chagrin. Some people did not want to see Naughty Dog just redo a relatively well-holding-up game, you know? Mm-hmm. I've played through The Last of Us 1 recently, and it's a good game. It still looks pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but... So, Naughty Dog... Has also done what the uh, the the entire Drake's Fortune. Yeah, Uncharted. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of my favorite series. Yeah, which probably has a broader audience than Last than, of Us than survival horror games, yeah. right? So maybe maybe a a large part of those people were hoping to see another, you know, thing similar to Drake's Fortune, or I would imagine so. Yeah. Um, you know that would be where the argument would come. I don't see why anyone else would, why anyone would argue with them. If they love survival horror, why you'd have a problem with that? It seems like a good bet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Naughty Dog is a Sony studio, right? They are indeed. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and Sony, Sony has a lot of survival horror in its library. Sure. <laughs> yes, it does. Yeah, you know. It's tough to say. I think that there's a whole ton of reasons as to why they ended up going with a remake for Part 1. They just announced that Part 2 just sold 10 million copies. So it is a pretty big success. Part 1 is going to have more to do with the HBO series. That's going to be the tie-in, essentially. Mm -hmm. So they probably want to get more eyes on that story in order to have a guaranteed fandom for their upcoming HBO series. So... In order to do that, why not make it a big flashy thing along with all those freshly sold PlayStation 5 still hot off the shelf? Right. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it, it. I've seen that ever since you got your PlayStation 5, you replayed a lot of games as they released for, you know, upgraded for PS5. Uh, you dove back into those survival horror games, so... Uh, it's a good bet that people will want to do that again. 
that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, it's probably a pretty strong strategy in the end. But that's not the only remake coming out. No. There was more announcements this week, and this one, I'm probably, even though I'm a huge The Last of Us fan, I love that story, I'm probably more excited for the Resident Evil 4 remake. Resident Evil 4 is legendary. I was gonna say, you love that game. It is. You gush about it pretty often. It is. I can't believe that that game ran on the PlayStation 2. I think the last time I played it, we ran the whole game on a PlayStation 2 that didn't have a uh, memory card. So we couldn't save. (laughs) And we couldn't turn the PlayStation 2 off. The original roguelike. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which means that you're going back to checkpoints that the game essentially assigns for you. You get one sort of save, uh, but you can't actually manually save anything. And what we did during that run was, well, for one, it took a few weekends because we were going over to a friend's house to do this, right? So that PlayStation 2 was running hot. That thing was a testament to how strong PlayStation 2s are. I think that you could probably uh, send them to Ukraine. They could use them as body armor right now. Those things are insane. So Mm -hmm. we didn't have a memory card, and we had a PlayStation 2 that had to run for weeks straight. And in the beginning of the game, there's a lake nearby. You can shoot at that lake's water, and you can kill bats in the water. Don't kill too many. But (laughs) if you get a few, you can pick up those bats, and they work as a healing item. But they take up a huge amount of your inventory space. Survival horror equals inventory management when it comes to Resident Evil, right? Then we chose not to get any inventory upgrades throughout the entire run, leaving us with the large backblast challenge, which is to never save... To use a large black mass throughout the entire run in your inventory and never grab any inventory upgrades. It is a (laughs) self-imposed challenge. (laughs) Because it wasn't survivally horror-y enough. No. Admittedly, You gotta carry a giant fish in your backpack (laughs) while you do it. (laughs) (laughs) Can't use those melee weapons to people around with. It was about the temptation. It was about, oh, the boss almost has us. We're, we're at our last leg. We don't have any healing items left. We could eat the bass, right? But no, no, we have to carry that thing to the end of the game. That was the whole thing. Right. And so, the reason being, though, we'd already beaten the game like three or four times. Resident Evil 4 is freaking awesome. I have to say, it's so good, so iconic, that the village encounter towards the beginning of the game... <laughs> Made the name Resident Evil 8 Village. <laughs> they based a whole sequel off and a single encounter. Yeah, yeah, they tried to invoke that same feeling of that encounter, which was very open-ended, incredibly tense and awesome. In the entirety of another game, a whole entry into the series. Wow. So, that kind of leads us to the idea of remakes in general, though. They're, they're pretty common. At this point. Right, yeah. Which is kind of surprising. I, I I really am not a big fan overall of remakes of anything. Um, because I, I feel like I'd rather see... Some new stuff. A new thing, yeah. Uh, but it does seem to be popular. I guess it's a certain way to have stories to produce that you already know people like. It's just strange yep. to... You know, when are they going to remake uh, 
Uh, Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know I mean? yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fellowship of the Ring. Right. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> so I guess we'll see. Yeah. It, yes. Movie remakes are very different. A whole different league from game remakes. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. It seems an inevitability, though, that eventually you will have remakes of such movies that are going to make me shudder. But. <laughs> Yeah, I think remakes in the video game sphere of things make some sense. Because video games are really, really hard to make on the AAA level. And to be able to have that storyboard already written, the encounters already there, and keep your teams hired. Right. <laughs> keep your texture guys working and, and keep your engine guys, you know modifying things and building on top of your prior projects and getting more familiar with new hardware and whatnot uh, is something that you have to do while the lead guys are brewing up the next big idea. Yeah, I agree. And there's, on that, there's a lot of good reason to do a remake for a new platform um, or, you know, to be able to upscale it to something like the PS5 and its capabilities. Mm -hmm. You almost have to remake some of that stuff in order to get the you know, to make full use of the 4K resolution. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can't. It's it's otherwise generally going to be upscaled. They had to remake stuff for the for, for the PS4 Pro as well. Right. Um, you know, so it, it it makes a lot of sense if the technology has changed and the story can be told better and you know look awesome on those platforms. It def it definitely helps to extend the sales cycle for that game. Mm -hmm. If they don't remake it, people aren't going to be playing that game anymore. <laughs> no, exactly. True, it's another chance to get 60 bucks or, or 70 bucks now uh, from the people that already bought the game. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes that's the case. Sometimes they, you know, they give it to you if you already own it for PS4. There is a safety to it in that you have a guaranteed fan base to, to pander to, you know? <laughs> Certainly, same reason they do sequels. I've just been a bit pessimistic the last few years about video games in general remakes, even Sony first-party games like Last of Us and Naughty Dog and uh, all those guys that are generally, they release some great games. Just because there's so much effort put into these huge titles doesn't mean that there's going to be the same degree of enjoyment as a game that's just flat-out fun. And finally, I mean, since... It's so survival horror-y this week. There is a new title that's coming out this year, The Callisto Protocol, which is being created by prior developers of Dead Space, but they've made a new studio, a new IP, or, or maybe joined a new studio. And it looks very similar to Dead Space. If you're not familiar, Dead Space followed the engineer Isaac as he made his way through a uh, space station, or a space uh, station on a... Planet? Extra, yeah. Uh, exoplanet? Yeah, something exoplanet like that. of sorts, yeah, yeah. It was, it was kind of like an alien's... Um, yeah! ...experience. Very, very dark, and uh, you felt isolated, mm -hmm. uh, like extremely isolated. There was, wasn't there a lot of, like, uh, um, 
complete remote like there was no audio in certain parts or something yeah, as yeah. I recall. it did a really awesome job of handling the space encounters and stuff there was also a rather ambitious mobility where you could leap off from one wall and land on an opposite one and you would travel through the air as you in a direct path as you did so and it was uh, a really kind of exciting way to move around but the enemy creation, the, the enemy design in that game was absolutely mind-blowing. They were all terrifying, the necromorphs they were. And uh, they were all these humans who had been twisted into these terrible forms. And one of the secrets about that game uh, was that the artists actually took models of humans and morphed them into these creatures. Really? So you could always see the origin of a human frame within these grotesque monsters, which made them all the more scary, and the Callisto Protocol seems to be following the same thing. Okay. The other thing that Dead Space was super known for was uh, death animations. Much like kind of in the new Tomb Raiders, mm -hmm. uh, Isaac, the engineer, died in many horrific and unsettling ways. And it seems as though the Callisto Protocol is intent on following that legacy quite closely, because in the trailer, uh, this poor prisoner, it seems, who may very well be our protagonist, suffers many brutal deaths with his head being chomped half to bits and all Jeez. sorts of stuff. Yeah, stuff that'll make you cringe in your chair and go, I think I'm done playing with this for tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose that's sort of a part of survival horror genres in general. Between The Last of Us and Resident Evil, all those games have those gut-wrenching deaths when you fail the level. Yes, you know? The Last of Us handles that in a slightly different way, though. The Last of Us always cuts to black right before things get gruesome, which leads it to your imagination, which I think is potentially even worse. But there's a certain spectacle, I think, that the artists wanted to go for with games like The Callisto Protocol, where... They want to show off just how bad it was for your character when you slipped up that way. <laughs> Fair enough. So when we originally built the Geekery, we had no intention of carrying any back issues. It was only going to be new comics. Um, and then over time, we found out that uh, people were not only coming to the shop looking for back issues, we were kind of generating back issues by, you know, putting comics on the shelves and then whatever was left over in the following months essentially became back issues. Yeah, that's going in the long box. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. So, you know, it did become something where we decided we needed to have available these long boxes and we um, built displays for them and have been putting boxes out so that people can buy back issues from us. And in the process, you end up pricing all of your back issues um, and finding out, you know, what, what things need to be uh, priced at. And we noticed a, a, a common thing going on, and that's that Marvel Comics are the ones that really generate value in back issues, right? Yeah, if you look into it, they're the ones that pull in the price range. Yeah. It's pretty wild how far differentiated they are from indie back issues that you might suspect could have a lot of fans, a lot of people looking out for them. Savage Dragon, number one, 
What do you think it would go for? I would say that's like a $50 comic, right? It should be, right? If it's in nice shape? Yeah, yeah. What's it go for? I I, I don't know, maybe five bucks right. or something. Five, uh, ten bucks? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, it, it's, not, it's not high at all. Um, spawn number one? People come in with spawn number one all the time. Awesome IP. Todd McFarland, he's still killing it with that thing. I have a bunch of Spawn fans who uh, really, really still love it the whole way through. And they say, yeah, if I issue a Spawn number one, you know, if I got it graded, what do you think it would go for? And I got to break it to them that that is a $20 book, even if it's in Uh. perfect shape. Because though it is a cool collectible, a cool thing to have, they printed like 2 million of them. And it wasn't so long ago that... They've been destroyed or used too much. People knew that that was going to be a cool book, so almost two million of them are still in circulation. And even though it is a number one of a cool character, it's it's oversaturated in the market. Yeah, I mean, and that isn't to say that there aren't indie and smaller publisher books that don't end up having some incredible value. They make a point Um, of it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there are definitely some that do. And we've got a number of them in our boxes, and we've got a number of them on the wall. But it's not a given that what would sound like it would be a, you know, a highly valuable piece ends up being that. It, It usually is for other, you know, for... For certain reasons, whether it be, you know, some variant cover that takes off. That's what I was going to say is now they make a point of making like retailer variants where you only get one copy per store. Or just highly limited availability variants. Those those tend to have uh, more value or some character is introduced that becomes some, you know, really big media IP at some point. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, there's. There's various reasons why they happen, but it's 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 not just by simply being a number one. I wonder if Marvel's, the way they issue, how, how many number ones of Inhumans are there? Does that have any effect oh. on what those back issues are worth? Because I know DC will go into the hundreds, whereas Marvel will sort of do a, a soft restart multiple times as of recently. As yes. of recently. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think Marvel's wrecking up their own IP that way. Um, I really feel like they 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 push out too many number ones, um, and so what they're doing is they're diminishing the previous ones every time they do that. In general, manga lovers enjoy holding that over Western comic readers' heads. Let's <laughs> say uh, you know, where do I start with One Punch Man? They're like Volume One, bro. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where do I start with the Mighty Thor? Like, well, there's number one. 2022, there's number one 2016, there's number one 2007, there's number one 1992, and there's the real number one in 1968. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and if you're going to kind of enter your stuff into a, uh, a database and get their values and all of that, it's very difficult when you, when you have all of these various number ones. Yeah. yeah. The manga really has it nailed for doing that. And and really, Marvel should have done that. They should have revolumed whenever they wanted to make a change yeah. that was that significant. You bring out a new uh, you know, artist-writer team. Um, they should have gone ahead and just said, okay, well, this is volume two of The Hulk. Yeah. Um, and But it, the issue number should have just been continuous. I believe so. And you do kind of see them attempting to tap into that. Like, I believe Thor number 24 or 25 was actually Thor number 750. 
of the most well, recent run. All that is is them trying to cash in on the the seven fifty. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. It, they're not they're not maintaining that as being useful to us. It's useful to them for their marketing purpose. True enough. Yeah, it's still Thor number twenty four or twenty five as far as we're considered yeah. when we're trying to organize things. But it worked. It's a desirable comic. You know, people were scrambling for it. Yeah, it, that that part is a little bit disappointing. It, it you know, it's a little bit frustrating, and I do I do wonder how it's going to affect overall value of those issues, but we'll see. Um, yeah, I feel like if they're going to keep with making new series with these familiar characters, then they need to have a differentiator. Like, I have no problem with the Immortal Hulk number one through fifty. You know, that's a different thing. I feel right. like that's its own run. You know, mm-hmm. but Hulk. Number one again. You know? right, right, right. <laughs> it's like just call it Hulk Rage Out or something. You know, yeah. give me just a little bit of something that makes me know that this is a different number one than Hulk number one or the Hulk <laughs> number one that came before that. So something relatively new to the shop. Mm-hmm. Something we hold near and dear to our hearts every time a new D and D book comes out uh it's always an exciting time yeah this latest one yeah the new one i'm i haven't really looked at it yet it look it has a nice cover but they all have nice (laughs) covers yeah generally that's true morden kynans presents monsters of the multiverse yeah oh wow so the zuckerberg <laughs> well, that's the metaverse. Yes, yeah, yeah. Metaverse and presents the Zuckerberg. <laughs> <laughs> the metaverse. I actually, if Morty kind of guided me into the metaverse, I would truly ascend to cyberpunk levels. <laughs> oh yeah. All right. Morton Kynan is what exactly? Morton Kynan is like a planar class wizard. <laughs> it, it, what race is he? Human. Or is he non-racial? I mean, he seems to be immortal at this point. He's probably ascended in our like level power. twenty. Yeah, yeah. The dude could be anywhere at any time. Level twenty, maybe a human. <laughs> right. Well, are you really human at that point? If you could polymorph, did he start off as human, or was yes, he always yeah. more than kind in the planer? You know, I'm not sure. Though okay. I did see the first introduction to Fizban. Uh, in Dragonlance. Yeah, in Dragonlance. Yeah, I, I saw you mention that on our Discord. I did, yeah. yeah, and it's interesting because, of course, being in Dragonlance, which is still a D&D realm, it's not the Forgotten Realms, which is the one that everyone's familiar with, the Sword Coast and all that, but Dragonlance is one of their worlds, you know. And uh, within that world, Fizban is first discovered, like, smacking a tree with his staff because uh, it appeared in a place he liked to sit and he's immediately captured by draconian guards. He's just like this feeble, crazy old man who happens to know Fireball. Uh, and yet look <laughs> <laughs> and yet look at this. He, he gets his own whole prepaid mini line and stuff, yeah. Somehow, yeah. Yeah. His wow. treasury of dragons. <laughs> yeah, you're right, yeah. Uh pretty sure that dragons are A, like absolutely B. terrifying in that world. And B, like <laughs> He doesn't want anything to do with them. <laughs> so, the uh, multiverse. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of a combination of Morninkainen's previous Tome of Monsters and Tasha's Cauldron, uh, which is an interesting mix-up. Uh, it's got some interesting stuff in it, some 
new monsters, some variants of monsters that we already know and love. Uh, as monster well as some player race. Yeah, a yeah. lot of new okay. player races, and of course that brings along the sort of new age racial abilities that uh, everybody has their own opinion on, I think. So this is the rules we're supposed to use when we make new characters? If you want. Yeah, this seems to be the way that they're approaching what might be released as 5.5, and one of the big changes is going to be that there are no stat attribute increases or decreases by choosing any given race. So this is like a preview of what we might see in the player's handbook? Yes, if it gets an update. Okay, mm -hmm. okay. So what, what does that break down? You know, what does that mean to me? So instead of half-orcs having a plus two to strength and a plus one to con, they'll have a bunch of like four or five racial abilities, basically. Uh, you know, like reckless endur or relentless endurance, uh, stuff like that. I think the hobgoblins have a bunch of special help actions rather than a plus two to con and a plus one to intelligence. Stuff like that. It'll it'll switch things up. It's a big departure for sure. It feels like. They're trying to give a lot of flavor to the race, for sure, by giving them unique abilities. Mm. Thematic ones that make sense, but... But what doesn't seem to make sense is that some races are naturally more nimble than others. Not that you can't represent this via assigning the attributes yourself, of course. But don't elves seem more wise than halflings, per se? You know? like, just in a general sense? Right, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think... I guess they're just trying to be um, socially sensitive I get here. It, yeah. Bec and, and somehow they're tying these sort of meta-human races to... Reality? Like, reality and human races where... You know, in my mind, human races are represented in that world as humans. Yeah, yeah, that's just all humans. Right. Uh, <laughs> that's and, the point. And they have nothing to do with the other races. Like, uh, you know, they, they, I don't know what the implication is there that, you know, what they're... Maybe they believe themselves guilty of thinking of it that way, but I don't know that we all thought of the D&D &D races in terms of how they relate to human races. That may very um, well be, yeah, the way that they're approaching it, kind of with a more uh, socially conscious way of looking at things. But it does seem to imply, yeah, that they, they had a certain connection in their mind that I wasn't necessarily making because I always thought that these races were fantastical and diverse and... Don't exist in our world. Naturally, a Goliath would be tougher than a gnome. <laughs> yeah. you know? You'd think so, right? Yeah. You? Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, I, so uh, what is a Goliath's uh, racial uh, benefit? So uh, it can be represented well through that. Like, Goliaths do have, I believe, a D12 that they can roll when they take damage and they reduce it by mm -hmm. that D12 plus calm or something along those lines, which in low levels can. Especially strong. negate, yeah, an attack against you, which is pretty cool. This is one of the new racial. No, I don't think no, so. That's, a, that's one of their extra. That's just an abilities. example. Maybe they would give them something like 
thick skin for an additional plus one to AC natural armor. That's just something quick off the top of my mind. Right, or whatever. Okay. But yeah. if that was the case, then I could see it ultimately balancing out while still giving you cool racial options. But it's definitely different, and I'm not going to say it's hard to swallow, but it doesn't quite make sense for someone who has been very stat and attribute-oriented and, and played right. since, you know, straight-up third edition or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you've played, hell, you played original D&D, Dad. Right. You played AD&D, which is pretty much a stat game. <laughs> sure, game. but those games also were, uh, yeah, they were a mess. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know. What Gnomes they, were monsters. <laughs> I mean, I I don't really have a problem with them reworking how that works. Especially if I get cool racial abilities, yeah. then I can build... You know, as long as I, I'm adjusting my own sort of, uh, you know, pool of points in my stats mm-hmm. um, or using the standard array, then I can, you know, I can make my Goliath be Goliath-like yes. in his stats. Um, I It made sense before in that it, it leaned, you know, it leaned all Goliaths to being large of stature, mm-hmm. you know, thick and strong. That made a lot of sense. You know, you didn't see a lot of slight uh, Goliaths. It's not nearly um, as drastic as it was in the past, per se, where in 3rd edition or before, uh, if you played a half-orc, you got a decrease to your intelligence. You know, there's no negative attribute modifiers, I believe, in 5e. Nope. Uh, with the exception of maybe an orc. Or drow under sunlight. Right, Like, oh, a sure. few specific circumstances. But in general, they made sure to make sure yeah, these all beneficial. Sure. And drows had superpowers anyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but <laughs> we'll talk about that another time. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it, it's unfortunate that they felt they had to get away from the stat adjustments because it did kind of cause... Uh, all all players or all characters of that type to lean in a certain direction, and you know all Goliaths would then be big. Mm-hmm. But maybe these these new sort of uh, bonuses that they apply are going to favor it that way, anyways. And maybe the descriptions of the characters are going to be like you know it'll just make it odd. Hey, why are you a you know describing yourself as being a super small Goliath unless you're going to be considered odd yeah yeah i mean people would recognize that's an odd goliath because you're very small sure i I have no problem with trying to supersede the expectations of a race as well you could have you could have a uh particularly spry and nimble dwarf Mm -hmm. uh, or a really cunning halfling or something along those lines that makes for a good character right that that kind of stuff is cool for sure and leaving the power in the player's hands is good and what was interesting in this uh, Mordenkainen Presents Monsters of the Multiverse was that they gave a lot of racial attributes to these new monster races. Like the centaur and stuff had six or seven various attributes. Yeah, no, that's pretty crazy. And overall, although I have my gripes with it, you know, there, there's a few different things I might have done differently. I'll never turn down extra tools for the player to use, extra options for them to choose from in terms of how they make their character. Whether or not you want to use the regular 5th edition ability score increase and a racial feat or two, or if you want to take the more, you know, we'll call it 5.5e sort of 
seven racial abilities or what have you. That That's cool with me. Uh, more options is better. Do halflings still get luck? I'm sure they do. Probably to an <laughs> increased degree. They should right. Yeah, so I mean, those sorts of things make it fun. Um, so, you know, I guess what I'm seeing there is maybe the possibility of more fun things that players get, especially new players, when they have those sorts of things, it gives them a clue on things they can do with their character and things that they can make, you know, so that you can then recognize their character for the race that they are. And that about does it for this one. If you liked hanging with us, please subscribe through your favorite podcast directory. Join our Discord and check out our shop, The Freakopolis Geekery. See you next time.